This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Diversity at Facebook is a big issue. I asked design program manager Marcy Quintana how having a diverse workforce affects what Facebook creates. Having a diverse workforce really makes Facebook a better product overall. Different people have different cultural values and therefore they use things in different ways. So being able to have that perspective is critical, really, to our success as a company. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, HCSC Blue Cross Blue Shield is looking for the following positions in Chicago. Technology Application Architect. Senior Program Manager. Assistant IT Product Manager. Business Analyst. And Senior XP Programmer. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts when there are new positions added to the job board. You'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, MailChimp, and SiteGround. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Of course, it's 2018, so a lot of people are learning how to code. That's probably a resolution some of you might have. And I have to tell you, Glitch provides you with a platform to easily start creating anything from a Slack bot to a skill on Alexa to even just a simple website. You can also check out someone else's Glitch project from the homepage and remix it to make it your own. And if you get stuck, just raise your hand and someone will help. What will you create today? Get started at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Like I said before, it's a new year, which means it's a great time to work on your email marketing efforts. Let MailChimp's pre-built marketing automation help you out here. Automations are like a second brain for your business. And I mean, after the holidays, who doesn't want that, you know? They can really do the heavy lifting for your email marketing efforts so you can focus on what's truly important, your business. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. Need cloud hosting or a dedicated server? SiteGround's got you covered. Hosting WordPress or Drupal, Magento, or Joomla? They can handle it. And with award-winning customer support and amazing uptime, you don't have to worry about hosting issues at all. 
Get started today by visiting SiteGround.com forward slash revision path and get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking to visual designer Jermaine Bell out of Baltimore, Maryland. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Jermaine Teron Bell. I am a visual designer. I typically work with individuals, nonprofits, and small businesses on marketing, collateral, and overall just messaging for audiences. So that could be social media management, that could be creating programming to get a message across to your audience, or it could just simply mean graphic design. So that's what I do. Sounds like you you wear a lot of hats. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) What is a a typical day like for you? Does that exist? Yeah, so a typical day is atypical, I guess. (laughs) I work from project to project, so I can't really say like what my life is going to be. But a constant right now is uh, a project that I'm working on with a woman by the name of Crystal Mack. She is a food entrepreneur who had a bakery here in Baltimore in the Remington area that she has now shut down and just gone mobile with. In her shop, she was selling, well, she wasn't selling, but she had art on the walls. And so from that, she decided to create like a mobile market, a pop-up market in different spaces featuring artists of color. So I've been helping her with that for the last two or three months to get that off the ground. And um, we just had our first event a while back with Cherry Bomb Magazine. And Cherry Bomb Magazine is like a women in food magazine. So we did our first event with them and we've just been working with other, you know, makers, creators, entrepreneurs and featuring them on blackmarket.co, which is a blog that we're working on together. Nice. You know, one thing that I I noticed as I was, you you know, of course, learning more about you and doing research for this episode is how how much Baltimore is just like a part of of who you are as a designer. Of course, you're you're originally from Baltimore. Is that right? Yep, Born and raised. What was it like growing up there? What were you like as a child? (laughs) So growing up in Baltimore was interesting for me because we were a family of East and West Baltimore. That has a lot of significance for people who are from Baltimore, if they're listening. East and West Baltimore are like, you know, Siberia Siberia to one another. But Baltimore is not a big city. But if you're from East Baltimore, you don't really cross and go to West Baltimore and vice versa. But my mom was from West Baltimore and my dad was from East Baltimore. So but they moved to Baltimore County. So what that meant was we were always in Baltimore City, Baltimore City and Baltimore County. Baltimore County is the suburbs, but we lived in a suburb called Woodlawn, which was like a working class black suburb where people were mailmen and teachers and UPS men like my father and working for the state of Maryland like my mom. So it was like, you know, a very scrappy, really black first generation out of Baltimore City kind of neighborhood. So it was like bougie light. Okay. (laughs) So I went to private school, but I went to private school in the city. So I was always at my grandma's house or at my cousin's house after school until my mom picked me up. And when my mom and dad went on on the weekends, I was also in the city. So it was like this duality that... I know that a lot of my friends didn't have because they were primarily based either in the county or they were based in the city. 
So I had this like very rich childhood of just being around educated black people, but like really street smart black people. So I am very thankful to have grown up in Baltimore because it, it makes you tough. Was creativity a big part of your childhood? Yes and no. My parents are, as I said, my mom works for the state of Maryland. And she always says, like, I hated art in school. I hated it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my mother was fly as you, you know, like she was so fly. Like she was the one who was always coordinating our our Easter outfits and like our matching shirts for our, our photos from Olin Mills, which is like a photographer here in Baltimore. So she was very creative, but she didn't see it. And then my aunt, who was like a babysitter for us, she was always having us color in coloring books. And so I was always trying to match what my aunt was doing because she would color these beautiful, beautiful pages. And I'd be like, oh, I have to color like that. And so she's the one that I guess I took all of my artistic skills from. And she was a quilter. She was sewing. She made outfits for everybody in the family. She made my cousin's prom dress. She made, as I said, quilts. She cut everyone's hair. She made everyone's birthday cakes. So she was always the one that I looked to for creativity in my life, I guess. Nice. When did you kind of get the spark yourself for design? Like, like, well, I guess design and, and creativity, because I know it sounds like you had not only these influences from your family, but also these influences of being in different parts, like different geographic parts of the city, like when you were in high school, is this something that you felt like you really wanted to do? Yeah. So in high school, I went to a magnet high school. And so I took a class called lithography and printing. And that was matched with a class called computer graphics. So I learned how to like use the computer to make pretty things. But then I also learned the skill of like using your hands to actually print things out on a printing press. And I actually got my first Well, my second job, because I started working when I was 15 at Baskin Robbins. But my second job when I was like 16 during that summer was at a printing press. And so I learned how to basically take everything from the beginning to the end, like how to set up something on the computer, but then also how to like print it out. And I have some awful, awful designs that I created back then. Yeah, I feel like when we all get started, we, you know, we're still kind of trying to figure out what our style is. So those early designs, those early designs tend to be a little bad. Do you ever go back and revisit those? No, because they're horrible. <laughs> they are horrible. <laughs> so after you you graduated, you went to MICA, which is the what Maryland Institute. I'm, I always get the acronym wrong. What does MICA stand for? Maryland Institute College of Art. College of Art. I, I figured that was what it was. Tell me about your time there. What was it like? Well, I didn't go right from high school to MICA. Okay. I spent close to almost like eight years in the real world. Okay. I went to school in Minneapolis and then I finished that and came back home. It was a program. And then I came back home and lived with my parents. I was like 19. I moved out when I was 17. I moved back back out when I was like 19. And I started like working all of these call center jobs, Comcast cable, healthcare, mm-hmm. you name it, I did it. And so what sparked it was I got fired from Comcast, which I thought was going to be the end all career for me. I thought I was going to work in that call center forever. And, you know, no, no. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) In hindsight, it was the best thing to happen to me because what it did was Comcast offered to pay for school. So I started taking classes at a community college while I wasn't at work. And so 
when I started taking those classes, I didn't know what I was going to go for. But I had one day just decided to just go take a tour of Micah because Micah was not in my purview growing up. It just wasn't because of what I said. You know, my parents were just not those artsy people. So mm-hmm. I just went and took a tour of Micah one day and I was just like, oh, my God, I love this so much. I can do this. This is something that's within me. So I took a tour of Micah, but I didn't go to Micah for almost three years because I maxed out on credits at my community college because, you know, I was going to pay for this myself. My parents had already like said, like, you know, we offered to pay for school one time and you screw that up. So <laughs> this is on you. Mm-hmm. So I had to basically, you know, earn my way into Micah. And I did that by going to a local community college of Baltimore County. Well, now, you I don't want to, you know, gloss over what you said earlier. You said that you were in Minneapolis for a while because it, <laughs> it kind of took you a while to go from from high school to Micah. And I mean, eight years is a is a long span of time. Can you tell me kind of what was going on during that time? Yeah. So I actually went to school for broadcasting. OK. Much to my parents chagrin. But I was <laughs> I was 17 and I thought I was grown. Like, I have always thought I was grown. So when I turned 17, my parents were like, what do you want to do after high school? And I was like, I want to go live somewhere else because I just wanted to get away from, you know, living in Baltimore. There was, you know, I was a closeted gay kid. So I just wanted to go spread my wings and like live somewhere else and see what else was out there. And so I moved to Minneapolis for this program, which I later found out was unaccredited. And I owed a ton of money for because my parents were like, we'll help you. We'll co-sign on this. But you're (laughs) these loans are going to be in your name. They're not in our name. This is your decision. If you want to do this, you need to become an adult and start taking responsibility for your actions. So that was my time in Minneapolis. And my oldest friend that my oldest friend that I have now, actually, I met in Minneapolis. So there was one positive (laughs) and move into Minneapolis. Wow. (laughs) I know, right? Why broadcast? And you said it was to your parents' chagrin. Did they not want you to go into that? My parents were just like, what are you doing? Like, Uh uh-huh. It was kind of on a whim. I have no idea how I decided to go there. Like somehow these people got in touch with me. I think it was like one of those things where like you, I think it was like early internet where like you start signing up for stuff and people get your information and they reach out to you. I don't know, Maurice. I have no idea how I decided I wanted to go to this school. I just knew that I had to get out of my parents' house and I had to go spread my wings and I was going to do it in Minneapolis. I hadn't done no research. I just knew I had to be grown and get out of my parents' house. That's the honest truth. Look, look, I know that feeling. When I was, um, I graduated college and, oh, not graduated college, I graduated high school. I was very much the same way. I mean, I had like scholarships and offers to go places and I really just went to the place that could get me out of town the fastest. (laughs) I left my hometown two weeks after I graduated high school. Like I'm out. Yeah. Like I got to get out of here. So I know that feeling all too well. You just kind of want to, I mean, you, you spread your wings. I feel like, you know, especially if you've grown up kind of in, in one space for a while, which, you know, many people do, but I don't know, especially for creative people, there's just that need to go out there and see more and do more and experience more. And sometimes it can be hard for, for your family to kind of realize that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I, let me backtrack. I should say that two good things came out of Minneapolis. My friend, Teresa, who is my oldest friend, but also Teresa and I were like, just very artsy and outsiders. We were both like blue collar kids who were interested in the arts. And so we just will like hang out and our hangouts would be like going to the Walker. 
which is a contemporary art museum in Minneapolis. That was like mm-hmm. the first time in my life I had ever just like gone to an art museum, not on a school trip. So that inspired me in a whole different way that I didn't even realize. And I just began living. That sparked something in my adulthood because no one in my family was going to art museums, not saying that, that you know, that that's a bad thing, but it was a good thing for me that I had the opportunity to go do what I really love to do. Yeah. So after Minneapolis, you, you end up at MICA, you're, you're studying graphic design. Tell me what, what happens after that. After going to MICA? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, after you graduate, you kind of just like wander around. And because neither of my parents, my mother had gone to a, a business school, like, uh, like a, a two-year program, an associate's degree. But I had no real... My parents are great after practice with this because I don't want my parents to sound awful. My parents are great, but I had no real guidance when it came to college and how to figure all this stuff out. So, you know, I was basically saddled with debt from the first school because at that point they were like, give us our money now. And Mm -hmm. at this point, I had been working at Starbucks. I had been working in the gallery on campus. I had worked in the diversity office. I had no real money. So that's when I applied to Havas, which is an advertising agency with chapters all around the world. And I actually got the job. And yeah, I worked there after Micah. So that was my first foray into advertising. And I realized very early on that it was not the right match for my personality per se. And when it was all said and done, when it was time to renew the contract, we just went our separate ways. Just because mm-hmm. it was best for me, because I was doing like 18 hour days there. And that wasn't like once a week, that was like five days a week, because we were like the non sexy office, if you will. We were getting a lot of the runoff work from Manhattan and Chicago. So I got some amazing work in my portfolio, you know, from Michelob Ultra, Liberty Mutual. Those were the two clients I'm, I basically worked with, but I was also a traffic manager. That was oh okay, yeah, yeah. That was how they got me. <laughs> that was how they got me in the door. They were like, "Being a traffic manager won't be a huge part of your job," but it was a huge part of my job. For those that are listening that might not know, can you explain just what a traffic manager is and what they do? Yeah, sure. So a traffic manager is essentially like the admin for the creative team. So for the seven creatives that were on our team the three copywriters and the four designers i was basically the person who was doling out the day's work i was basically the person who came behind you to get the receipts from getty and beer and all your purchases of photos and i was the person to update people on what account managers were doing with new projects like who was on what project and there were like i think four to five account managers that were managing like several accounts and the dev team, which was like, once we designed something, the dev team would then make it a reality on these corporations, social media accounts or their in or on their websites. So I was basically like the connection between all three parts of the office, the creative, the dev team and the account managers. Plus, I was designing. So my day was very, very long. But I learned a, a whole lot, Maurice. Like I learned, I learned like five years worth of work in one year. So I, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very thankful for that experience. 
Yeah, being the traffic manager, especially at an agency, I feel like you're you almost have to be an octopus in terms of all the different kind of things that you're you're doing. You're you're managing the people under you to make sure that they're getting things in. You're you're funneling resources in. You're trying to make the project managers happy, and then you are designing also on top of that. Woo! Yeah, that's a lot. It was a that is a lot. It was a long day. It was a very long day most days because you know when you're working with clients that are big names, they can change their deadlines whenever they want. Yeah. So, and you're going to meet those deadlines because they are paying your bills. Yep. So I learned the art of immediacy. I learned to work fast, good, and hard right away. Now, from that point in your career, you kind of switched gears after the agency, right? You were working more with uh, with nonprofit organizations. Is that right? Yeah. So as soon as I left, like right when I was doing that, like I had met someone like literally right before I had started, I had met someone who had just started a job as the program manager for the English as Second Language Department at Morgan State University. And she had to basically build that office up from scratch because the person before wasn't into new media and she understood the power of new media. So she wanted a new logo. She wanted new postcards because, you know, you have to sell that program to potential international students. But she had none of the things in place to actually build that any of that stuff that she needed. So I essentially came in and just sat in on classes with the English as second language students, the Nigerian students and the students from South America, Buenos Aires, a whole list of countries in, in South America. And so I would just sit in the classes with them while they were doing this stuff and photograph them, which was very uncomfortable for them. But they got used to me because I did it for like two or three weeks. And then I also mm -hmm. accompanied them to trips like Fort McHenry, which is a location. This is where the Star Spangled Banner was actually written. So, you know, just they were being, I guess, patriated to America. And then I went with them to like the aquarium I followed them around for like two weeks just so I can get some great photos. So I was like an in-house photographer slash designer, and I was trying to grow my own business, I guess, be a freelancer. And then that very summer, my partner had his first big solo show here in Baltimore, and I'd already been like doing the photography and the press kits and all that stuff. I did all that stuff for him, but then I took on the role of like planning his artist talk by gathering three other artists and a moderator. Oh my God, I created like VIP press passes. I created a VIP press tour the day before. I did all this with my friend who was previously, who worked in PR and Glamour Magazine. His name is Kirk Shannon Butts. So him and I were working together to do this for my partner, Steven. So I was like his designer to the PR. So that was a really amazing project because I was working for my apartment and I got to do all these amazing things for someone that I care about one, but also like I would just think of new things to do. I would, <laughs> I started managing his social media. And so I was just trying to figure out different ways to get the word out about the show. So we did like a guerrilla marketing campaign where we put on t-shirts with this logo that I had created for the show called co-patriot. And we went to this free arts festival here in Baltimore called Artscape because we had no money mm -hmm. to actually sell at Artscape. So we just put on these T-shirts and we created these little posters with 
his paintings that were going to be featured in the show. And we just had, we like created like a spectacle essentially. We all wore white t-shirts and blue jeans. And then we just went out and handed out flyers. Yeah. Like 200 flyers that day. Cause the show was in less than a month at that point. So that was a, a learning experience for me. Like um, a huge learning experience for me, a, a really great project. It's one of like my most favorite projects I did. Now, one thing I certainly can tell just from, from our conversation, but also from doing my research is just like how integral being part of a, a supportive creative community is for you, particularly in Baltimore, where you were born and raised. Why is that so important for you as a creator? Hmm. I've never been asked why it's important. I guess it's important because I am the person that I'm working for. Part of me taking these fellowships is because the studios won't have me. I knocked on doors for close to a year after Micah, you know, but we all know like hiring discrimination is a real thing, Mm -hmm. but then we don't know if it's real or not, you know, because that's how racism works. You can't quantify it. You can only speak on what you feel. And so then you feel insane. And so I'm just trying to work to ease other people's mentality because in Baltimore, there is no shortage of amazing people and talent. So if I get an opportunity, I feel like, why not give someone else an opportunity? Uh I think that's important to me because I, I see so many people who get opportunities. And Baltimore is one of those cities that where you can come here and make yourself because we're very close to Philadelphia. We're very close to D.C. We're very close to New York. You can travel by train or plane to any of those places in less than three to four hours. So you have all this access to resources. You have a million great institutions like Johns Hopkins and Micah, great institutions that can back you and help you essentially learn and form your career. So a lot of people come here, they make themselves, they get some press, and then they bounce. Mm. So (laughs) then we're back to square one because Mm -hmm. what was an amazing program is now left abandoned because someone else has moved on because they wanted press or fame for themselves. So I am trying to work for people here in Baltimore who may not get those opportunities because a lot of those people who come here are either race neutral or white, so they can make themselves very, very popular and then move on. Mm -hmm. But black Baltimore doesn't get those opportunities, you know, because Mm -hmm. people don't want to actually deal with the racism. People don't actually want to deal with black problems. They want to put a bandaid on it. They want to say that they're working in those areas, but then they aren't actually doing that. Interesting. So it almost sounds like they're treating Baltimore like an incubator of sorts. I mean, Baltimore is an incubator. I mean, that is definitely what Baltimore is. Like, don't get me wrong. My city is great. It's beautiful. It's historic. But again, because it has all these resources and it's such a small town, people can come here and be big fish in a small pond and gain Mm -hmm. lots of things for themselves and move on. God, that feels like Atlanta in a way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. It really does. I mean, because we get an influx of, of people, I mean, all the time. But uh, certainly, I think if there's anything that's reflected that, it's been reality television. Oh my God. Where you have people that come from New York or from L.A. or something like, I'm going to just come to Atlanta and just get a fresh start or whatever. And <laughs> people can do it because the cost of living is low and 
And there's really at this point, because they're building so much, there's no shortage of places where you can kind of move into and get into the scene and, and stuff like that. More so around, I think, entertainment and film and music, and not so much, I think, around art and design. But I know what you mean about people can come to an area and perhaps people come to like, I know that some folks come to Atlanta because there's a certain, I think, cultural cachet that comes with the city where they feel like if they've made it here, then it gives them some kind of cred if they go somewhere else. So like maybe people are coming to Baltimore because Baltimore has a certain stigma or cultural cachet that's been built up maybe through media. And then they can go to New York and say, oh, well, you know, I did blah, blah, blah in Baltimore. They're like, Baltimore. Wow. Yeah. That's, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Freddie Gray. Period. Mm-hmm. Like, once Freddie Gray happened, a lot of people became social activists overnight. Like, I literally saw people, I'm seeing p- pictures on Facebook of people doing community outreach with little black children. And I'm just like, what? This wasn't, this is, <laughs> this was not your initiative last week. Now. Yeah. Now I see you in a daishiki and you're growing out an afro and you're <laughs> and you're interested in working with the community. That wasn't the case. That wasn't the case last year. And I'm not going to say that, like, you know, I'm out here saving the world. But, like, I have always had a hand in dealing with community because I am the yeah. community. Right. You're. I mean, you're of the community. Yeah. So right now for you, what is the design scene like in Baltimore? I don't know, Maurice. I have design family outside of Baltimore. My family is like DMV adjacent. My design community is people like Jennifer White Torres, who is working with Bowie students and HBCU here in Maryland. And she's literally shaping the minds of young black designers because we know that like with black designers, there comes more things and just going to work and designing something. It means that you also have to deal with the racism. It means that you have to deal with only working on black accounts <laughs> or mm-hmm. being the one black person in your office. So she's prepping them for all those kind of things. I'm friends with people like Diane Halton, who works heavily, who actually influenced me to even join AIGA in the first place. I'm friends with people like Hadia Williams, who lives in D.C., who's an amazing designer, and she's doing stuff with her black pepper papery company. So I don't really know what the design community is like, sort of because I feel like I'm an outsider, to be honest with you. Like, I've tried to get in for so long that I've Uh I've given up at this point. I just do projects that will either have me or projects that I am really passionate about. Interesting. And and you, you even feel that way, even though you, you're, you're, I mean, aside from being from Baltimore, I mean, you, you went to Micah, you've worked there in the city and that feeling is still there. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. I definitely feel that way. Every project that I've gotten is been like, <laughs> there's blood on it because I have like clawed my way into it. Uh-huh. You know, the fellowships have been great. They've been a way for me to get my hand into a little bit of everything. But at the same time, like there is no guarantee with a fellowship. You can get yourself together. You can pay a few bills for like a year. But in the end, the next year, you're back at square one. So I'm not a person. I can never answer these questions easily. As I said before, I can never just say I'm a graphic designer. I'm an in-house guy because I haven't had that track. I envy people who have that track because 
it seems like, you know, they build a lot of things on their portfolio. And I've built a lot of things in my portfolio, but it's been it's difficult for me to explain what I do to people. And so I always mm-hmm. feel like this uh, imposter syndrome around the work that I do. I think it's important to to talk about that because, you know, especially for, for folks that come into design, particularly for black folks that come into design from more of a a non-traditional kind of way, it, it can be especially hard when you go into design spaces and you still feel like the other or you feel like you're intruding in some kind of like I I still feel like that. I actually uh, <laughs> I went to a design event. We're, we're recording this in November, but I mean, I, I went to a design event a few days ago. And I mean, I people I knew were going to be there. People expected me to be there, but I still felt like, what am I doing here? Because mm. I mean, I think out of the, the whole crowd of folks, I might have been one of like nine black people, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like still feeling out of place, still feeling like the other. And it was so funny. I, w- I went to it and I was wearing this, uh, I was wearing this hoodie. And the hoodie has the word nobody on the front of it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's from De La Soul. I was sitting down in the, you know, at the event, I was like in the second row or something. And, and this woman, she's sitting next to me and she leans over and she's like, you know what I think of whenever I see someone like you in a hoodie? I was like, what? Oh God. She says, she says, Trayvon Martin. Oh God. And I'm like, why would you tell me that? Why would you put that? That is. Why would you give me that? weird morbid thought that i now have to sit with for the rest of the night because now you're looking at me and associating me with a murder victim that is the mental terrorism that comes with being in pwis though and that's what you can't there are no tangible outcomes that you can produce from that like you can write a paper about it but like people still may not believe you yeah but that is the mental terrorism that comes with that and that's why i think like where we met at the black and design conference is so important because finally you get to have a discussion with other black people who are probably the one person of color in a PWI and all of these like amazing conversations happen. I mean, about like just everything from housewives of Atlanta (laughs) to, (laughs) to, you know, to grids and pixels and how to use InDesign. Like you learn so much and you feel so comforted because in these situations, we are always the other. And people let Mm -hmm. you know that you're the other. They have ways of letting you know and reminding you that you are not part of the main group. Yeah. And I mean, at that particular event, like that was the first time. And then it was funny because the woman had said that she had heard of me. I I had no idea who she was. I still really don't know who she is. But (laughs) but I was like, why would you tell me that? Like, just that was so weird. And I mean, the event itself was a was a good event, but it still was like the thing on my mind for like the rest yep. of the night. Cause that was like the first thing as soon as I got to the event and sat down, somebody told me that I was like, what? That's, that's so weird. So like, like let's talk about black and design. That was your, your first time attending, right? Yeah. 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 How did you feel at the event? Um, I felt really affirmed. I really felt like my mother goes to like women's retreats at her church, like how she must feel. Cause she comes back like glowing and singing. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how I felt. I felt like I felt really affirmed because again, I stayed with my friends that I mentioned earlier. And so again, we were just kiki and he, he and ha ha and the whole entire weekend. And, you know, I mean, we definitely, we were in Boston. So Boston is notorious for, <laughs> for certain things. Right. So we definitely had some moments in that way. But 
once we were in the conference, it was like a kumbaya, like, let's all be black and beautiful and talented. I enjoyed myself thoroughly. It was, you know, Saturday was like a marathon of like talks. We were kind of late because of like our train plane situation on Friday. Mm -hmm. So by the time we got to the, the event on Friday, we were kind of late and kind of burnt out. But Saturday so revived us because there was just like all these great breakout sessions and all these great, there weren't any breakout sessions, but all the great conference, all the, all the people who spoke on that day, it was just really amazing just to hear the variety of work that people are doing. Yeah. It blew my mind. Like it, it blows my mind because even, I think even we don't believe what we're out here doing because yeah, yeah, <laughs> we've been told that we don't do certain things. So when you see mm-hmm. a, an architect who has literally built a bridge in the middle of Los Angeles, California, you're like, wow. And then I got to speak to someone who I have always looked at as like a big sister, Michelle, who works for the National Museum of African American. Oh, yeah. Uh, Michelle John Wilkinson. Yes. Yeah. So Michelle uh, curated a show with my partner, Stephen, the show that I was the show that happened right after Co-Patriot. She saw the work and she curated a show and invited him to be a part of it. And she's always been like this, like she came to his show, Co-Patriot, with Andrea Pippins, another black designer, and Shawanda Roundtree, who's a collector. And I tell them they're like the Supremes, like they have no idea. Like they've always been like these black women that I've looked up to. So to have a weekend where I'm like sitting in a library where Michelle was showing me an, an article that she wrote some years ago and then like touring the campus and then going to there's a a building on Harvard's campus that was built by a black architect by the name of Julian I forget his last name I'm not going to lie to you but the knowledge like the knowledge that she holds in her brain and that she was just imparting on us but like in a very like cousinly kind of way like it literally I came back on cloud nine that week yeah when I went the first time uh, when they had it in 2015 it's interesting, like you said, you go and you don't even realize that black folks are achieving and creating this type of stuff that you you hear about, but you never see a person of color attached to it. Yeah, And I mean, you know, part of that is just how the design media is. They don't really reflect or, or cover or show any of that. I mean, I, I went the first year and I was seeing how some of the people were saying they built like these large scale artistic installations in Brazil and they've done, you know, these like community efforts where they're like feeding the community at like one big long table and stuff. And even, you know, at the the 2017 event where folks were sharing what they've done with community activism and the bridge, like you were saying, that was by, by Walter Hood and stuff. It's just amazing to see how people have taken this concept of design and, and just applied it in such broad and varied ways and it's it's really inspiring you know i remember the the first year i was trying to get people to go and people didn't want to go because it wasn't like about web design or ux <laughs> or graphic design and i'm like look it's called black and design like how many of these events have you been to in your career let's just go yeah the tickets are cheap let's just go and see what it's like and i mean i can tell you from you know the 2015 event the 2017 event the scope has certainly changed, I think, to include more graphic and digital stuff. I mean, it still has, you know, architecture and urban planning and everything in there. But I think it this the 2017 event showed a more kind of 
holistic view of design and how it can be used. I mean, we saw everything from like graphic design that Brandon Bro was doing to design and Afrofuturism from the the mayoral candidate. I forgot her name, something Ingrid, Ingrid LaFleur. Uh, yeah. I mean, we got to see how people use design in all these different ways. Like you can take that back to wherever you are, even if you're just like in-house designer at an agency, it at least affirms that the work that you're doing is significant and that people like you are making it happen. Yeah. And that's where, that's why I learned to like ease my discomfort with my ever growing title because on Friday night, I can't think of the name of the curator, but he was at black and design. He's a curator. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, Ingo LaFleur, D. Ray McKesson, Brandon Bro, Michelle Joan Wilkinson. These are all very, they all work in very disparate ways. But at the end of the day, design is at the forefront of what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the guy, um, his name was uh, Hamza Walker. That yeah, was his yeah, name, yeah, the curator. Yeah. So right after that, you were in Austria. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that. So I literally left harvard on sunday night i came here and dropped my bags on (laughs) monday and then i just kept my bags packed because i was leaving again on friday to go to austria for the salzburg global young cultural innovators forum i want to get all that right because it deserves that yes that's what i was in austria for what was the forum like can you tell me about it oh my god I saw on this guy named Sebastian Jackson, he's a, a person who essentially has created a, a barbershop that is open to all races. And he does these things called shop talks where he opens it up to the public and he has like hard to have discussions while he cuts that person's hair and another person cuts mm-hmm. another person's hair. He wrote on his Facebook that he could not put into words what he had just experienced. And that's how I feel. I mean, he actually did one of his shop talks with one of the panelists because one of the panelists had came and did this talk about how placemaking and cultural staples in America was like changing the game. And he showed a slide in Detroit where Sebastian is from. And Sebastian was in his feelings. I was in my feelings because another person showed a slide about an institution in Baltimore. And I was like, but that's a half truth. So he held this talk where he cut the guy's hair. And we had a discussion about like cultural institutions basically coming in and blocking other institutions that have been there for years, but don't have the financial means to do what the large institution has done. Mm-hmm. That's just one thing. <laughs> That's just one thing. I had this breakout session with this amazing black American woman by the name of Amina Dickerson, just figuring out what kind of leader are you? And she had us pull these cards where where you talked about what you were and what you wanted to actually achieve. I sat down in the library one day during an entrepreneurial breakout session with this guy who is a musician who actually designed earbuds for iPhone. And we just like we didn't we didn't even talk about anything except like our feelings as like what does entrepreneurship means to artists? Because, you know, artists, I don't know about other artists, but for me, I am not a numbers person. So for me, having to be the numbers person in my life is one of the hardest things. And we just had like an amazing conversation about that. I (laughs) friended just amazing people. I friended a woman who lives in New Orleans and we just were going around 
taking beautiful pictures in the mansion. We were each other's like Instagram husbands for the week. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I interacted with a, a woman from South Africa who was doing programming around South African, black South African women's mental health. I friended a guy from the Philippines who was working on graphic design doing campaigns around just the things that are happening in Philippines, you know, like the government having a say in entertainment and stuff like that. (laughs) I connected with the four other cohort from Baltimore because what happens is five people from each city from certain cities are picked to build a cohort. And so I friended a local councilman that I've only been friends with on Facebook and Jess Solomon, who I know from loosely from around Baltimore, we had a really amazing talk there. And Maggie Villegas, who is actually the executive director for VCAN, who I'm actually working on to create the identity for, we had an amazing talk. Like we connected as humans and not just colleagues. And Julia Dubasolo, who does a thing called Arts Every Day. So, like, and then on top of that, <laughs> we're in this place where The Sound of Music was filmed which is literally the most picturesque mansion you've ever seen with all these beautiful rooms with windows that open up to the Alps. You're looking out at the Alps every morning. So there's that. (laughs) But then on on top of that, you have these amazing spreads with like egg frittatas and turkey bacon and sausage and potatoes. You have a wet bar with kombucha and coffee and tea. So like you're really pampered and you have your own room You have your own room in this amazing hotel beside the mansion and you get to sleep in a big luxurious bed by yourself on top of having all these amazing conversations. So you get to like reflect on what you just talked about in this amazing room. And then you get to be around 50 people from around the whole entire country who are doing amazing work. It was a fever dream. I came back. (laughs) I came back. Like I should have done what most people did. Most people traveled throughout Europe to like just have like a little vacation and settle their mind. But I came right back and jumped into work. And like I literally was just having like a crazy breakdown because I was just like, what just happened to me? I'm back in reality. I have to make my own breakfast. I have to make my own coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I lived like a king once. I had great conversation, but now I have to get my head back down and get back to work. It was Uh it was literally the one of the most life changing experiences in my life, for sure. That's amazing. I'm really glad you were able to experience that. As am I. So, (laughs) (laughs) so let's kind of you know switch gears here a little bit. I'm curious to know, you know, kind of all the work and things that you're doing. You know, you mentioned the fellowship and everything. What is it that you want to accomplish in 2018? One thing that I definitely want to accomplish is I have to become an adult with my business and my taxes because I have like 2 million 1099s every year. Mm-hmm. And I have this, this accounting couple who I call my business mom and dad, their names are green world bookkeeping company. <laughs> and she's a Panamanian lady and he's an Afro Latino dude. And they literally do not go easy on me every January and every January I screw up and I'm apologizing And they're like, you're saving a change every year and you don't. So in 2018, I would like to actually get my finances in order and actually become a real businessman because I feel like I've been faking it until I can't make it anymore. Well, you know, I feel like, you know, for entrepreneurs, particularly for black entrepreneurs, there's that always seems to be the one part of business that gets left out. 
Like there's always these people that are talking about, oh, you need to start your own business and escape the plantation and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> yeah, you start working and doing your own thing, but nobody really gives you the ins and outs of like, how do I structure my business? Am I an LLC? Am I a C Corp, an S Corp? How do I structure my taxes for quarterly payments or regular payments? And don't even get me started on the battle of like finding a decent accountant. It is rough. I feel like that that financial part is the one thing that always gets left out. What gets played up is like the freedom to make your own schedule and all this stuff. And yeah, that's great. But like, it's also not great when you owe Uncle Sam all this money because you didn't realize when you set your business up, you didn't have the financial structure together in the first place. So it, it sounds like it's good, though, that you've got at least some people that are going to help you make that happen. I don't know how long they'll be in my corner, though, because they're sick of my BS. Like, I need to get it together. <laughs> are, are you paying them? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely paying them. So, like, they'll, they'll be there. <laughs> they'll be there. They'll be there. I, I guarantee. As long as you're still paying them, they'll be there. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> what piece of advice has stuck with you the longest? I think it's an, uh, an author Ash quote. I think it's author Ash. I think he said, do with, do what you can with what you have right now. Okay. Um, okay. That is a very important quote to me because that's like my life long lesson from my parents, right? Like they were regular black people from Baltimore who sent both of their sons to private school. Somehow, I don't know how they did it, but they did it. They sometimes brought their their kids, you know, fancy sneakers sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I firmly believe in like, I keep saying fake it till you make it. But I mean, like, what is making it? I don't know. Just do what you can with what you have. That's my, my lifelong lesson, to be honest. Just be happy with what you have, because I know in my life, I'm extremely blessed. I just talked about within one week, I was in two different great locations having conversations with amazing people. So, mm-hmm. and I never would have saw that for myself. If you would have asked me in January 2017, would that have happened? I would have definitely probably said no. <laughs> Do you feel like you've made it? Oh, no, <laughs> not at all. What does making it look like to you? You're going to reveal the capitalist animal inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, like, I would like to own a home, for one. Okay. Um, I'm in my 30s now. I don't own a home because I've spent so much time, like, figuring out who I am. Like, I I came out of the closet. I made really real friends. I made, like, a second family. I have an amazing partner that I've been with for eight years. So, I guess, in real life terms, I've made it, right? But in capital- capitalist terms, I still want to own a home. I want to see more of the world, to be honest with you. I've seen all parts of America, but going to Salzburg was my first time leaving the country. And okay, I just want to see more of the world and talk to different people. What is it that keeps you inspired these days? I'd have to say I have like two to three DM chats going on all day. <laughs> <laughs> The power of the group chat. Like, real talk. But sometimes not even a group chat. Sometimes I have a friend in D.C. that I, him and I just send each other ratchet memes all day. He's a painter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put him out there. His name is David Ibarra. Like, we're ratchet in the DMs. We just send each other dumb memes all day. That's, (laughs) 
that's what inspires me because our president is the opposite of inspiration. Seriously. Uh, every single day, it's just something, right? Like, right now it's Russia. Like, <laughs> he's in collusion with Russia. Who knows what it'll be tomorrow? Yeah, that is true. Is there anything that you're really excited about at the moment? I'm really excited about the work that I'm doing with Maggie Viegas at BCAN. I get to create an identity for a whole program that is going to last for 10 years and shift people's lives in ways that I can't even imagine. Like, I don't even know what this program is going to do for people. And Maggie has put her trust in me to create a great system that will visually represent the program. I also just created some new lapel pens, which I'm going to shamelessly plug. <laughs> so they're available at Nubian Human in D.C. That's Nubian Hue. H-U-E, man, in Washington, D.C. And they're also available in Baltimore at a location called Keeper's Vintage, which is in partnership with another store called Knit Soy Metal, which is a candle shop. They were my first retailer. They believed in me. And so I'm giving them a big shout out. And they're also available on my website, JermaineTBell.com. And they're also available on my Etsy which is JTB's Wax. And my Instagram has a link to that. JTB's Wax is J-T-B-E-E-Z-W-A-X. JTB's Wax. When you look at, at your body of work to this point, do you feel like you're satisfied creatively? I have to say that I look back and, I mean, I think every creative person wants to always, like, work retroactively. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, like... I want to change like the dot over an eye on some things. And I want to like edit this picture so that this is more centered and this is more of a focus. But I don't know when it became a dream of mine to have like stationery in a store, but it became a dream of mine. I think in like my teenage years or something, when I realized it was a thing that you could do, I think it was the mahogany cards <laughs> mm. that you get. I always wanted to have my cards be in a store and in 2016, that happened literally a week before my birthday, a day before my birthday. The opening of Knit Soy Metal happened a day before my birthday last year. And here I am with stationery in two stores at this point. I'm satisfied in some ways. Is there a dream project that you'd still like to fulfill? Yes. I don't know what I want to do with Michelle Obama, but I want to do something with Michelle Obama. Just, I mean, I, I saw Michelle Obama walk through a corridor because she was in Baltimore celebrating Malia's graduation slash Beyonce's concert in Baltimore. And I got mm -hmm. my entire life for a whole weekend just from her walking to her car, seeing her walk to her car. <laughs> so she is my Shiro. She is my inspiration. I don't know what project she would possibly want me to work on. Maybe it'd be like, you know, she want to, like, relaunch Let's Move, and I was a designer. I don't know. I'm speaking it to existence. Maurice, make this happen for me. Make the universe make this happen for me. Okay. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what would you like to be doing? What kind of projects would you like to do with that kind of stuff? Well, the work that I've been doing independently is, you know, partnering with nonprofits and small businesses to create whatever they need. I would love to continue that work. I would love to grow a studio if I could doing that type of work. I guess you mean professionally, right? In any way you want to take it. Um, any way you want to take the question. 
I would like to not be eating so much junk food. <laughs> okay. Um, no, that's real. Okay. <laughs> I want to be healthier. I would like to visit my parents more. I would like to be in a place where like I can control my work where it doesn't like necessarily control me. Cause right now I have to work so much on so many different things at all times, which mm-hmm. I'm not complaining about. Trust me because I love the work that I'm doing, but I would like some work life balance. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on that myself. So I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. It's hard trying to, cause when you work for yourself and I think particularly in this particular climate, you end up having to do so many different things and sort of cobble them all together just to make, just to make it, you know, like you might design and you might teach and you might do this and you might do that. And you have to kind of pull all these things together and all of that can really kind of take a toll on you, you know, mentally, creatively, that would be different if you just did kind of one job or something. Yeah. My cool calendar is like my best friend. Like I, have to me too (laughs) (laughs) i'm so glad to hear that from somebody else because people always trip when i'm like look if it's not on my calendar it didn't happen it doesn't exist it it has to be i have to like when you and i were talking i had to instantly make a block on my calendar even (laughs) even if like you know intensively until i had the actual information right right I have to put it there so that I don't start doing something else. Because like you said, when you work for yourself, there is always a calling for something. Like you always have to be doing something. Yep. And you have to be ready because if you're not ready at that particular time, when they call you, like the window of opportunity can be gone in an instant. Yeah. Well, Jermaine, just to wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah. Thanks for giving me that opportunity to say that. My favorite medium to use is Instagram. I'm classy in the streets. I'm ratchet in the DMs. <laughs> <laughs> My handle is at J-T-B-E-E-Z-W-A-X. I love meeting people on Instagram because it's visually stimulating. And that's my mm-hmm. respite from real the real world. I can't really do Facebook and Twitter anymore. It's just too much, too much Trump. I can't take it. Yeah. And I also have an Etsy, same name, J-T-B-E-E-Z, Wax, where you can buy my prints, my stationery, and my lapel pins. I have two retail locations, Nubian Human in Washington, D.C., Nubian H-U-E, Man, Nubian Human. I also have one in Baltimore, Keepers Vintage, and Nitsoy Metal which is in the Mount Vernon neighborhood. And I'm actually updating my website so that you can actually buy it from my website as well, which is Jermaine, J-E-R, main length estate, T-Bell, like taco, JermaineTBell.com. All right. Sounds good. Well, Jermaine Bell, thank you again so much for for coming on the show. I kind of just want to thank you really for being so open about the work that you're doing about, you know, also kind of the the struggles that you're facing. Cause I feel like, you know, we often have to put this, this certain facade out that everything is fine and everything is okay. And not saying that that doesn't help at times, but I think it also really is important to show, you know, these are the ways I'm doing good. These are the ways I might not be doing so good, but also these are the ways that the community kind of still supports and affirms the work that I do. Like, I think it, it really kind of helps 
people endear you to the work that you do, the philosophy that you have as a designer. And I mean, as I was doing this research for this interview and I was, you know, looking up more about you and reading up more about you, I was like, this dude is so inspiring. Like I couldn't think of a better person to start off this year with. So thank you again so much for coming on the show. I do appreciate it. Let me say thank you, Maurice Jerry, because you know, the reason I love Instagram is because like it's a documentation of your life. Mm -hmm. Your podcast is very similar to that. Like, you know, in 40 years, you're probably going to have a little B-roll in like the the museum where Michelle works, uh, Michelle Wilkinson, the NMAC, you know, because this is important work. We are out here. We are literally out here. But how would we know if you didn't document it? So I appreciate you so much for having me on this show. Like I said, it's a mama. I made it moment for real. <laughs> Well, thank you, man. I, I appreciate hearing that. And again, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Jermaine Bell and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jermaine and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, MailChimp, and SiteGround. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. But you know, Facebook isn't just one product or one type of design problem. Their work transforms a number of industries from advertising, uh, news and media, local business, video, and of course, messaging. No other company designs at a massive scale like they do. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Now, I know if you're a designer, you might think, is Glitch for me because they're talking about coding and web apps and stuff? And the answer is yes. You know, too many of these kind of tools, you know, coding tools, they can put up barriers to creativity with a lot of complicated setup, a lot of complicated features, and Glitch just lets you get started with no hassle at all. So what will you create today? Get started at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. With different hosting platforms to suit every need, including managed WordPress hosting on all plans, SiteGround will not let you down, trust me. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. First, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And next, leave us a rating and a review. 
It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show out by bumping us up in the rankings there for Design Podcast. Not just in the U.S., by the way, but international. You know, I get an email every day where I can see where Revision Path ranks, uh, like, internationally. We're, like, number 15 in design in Vietnam. We're, like, number 12 in design in Nigeria. So your reviews and ratings really help get the show out all over the world. So please make sure you leave a review. I'll even read it right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.